Okay. We have uh, two readings today to look at. Um, the first one can be found on the Church Bibles on page 281. Uh, it's 1 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. That's page 281. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, What is wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jebesh Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jebesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever seems good to you. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us, and we will put them to death. But Saul said, No one shall be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there reaffirm the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed um, Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There, they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. We'll go to um, 1 Samuel 15, and page 286 in the Church Bibles, starting at verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Malachites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. 
But Saul and the army sped Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely because everything that was despised and weak was totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, um, Saul has gone to Carmel. There, he has set up a monument in his own honour and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached Saul, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Milakites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went in mission. The Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nigel, for reading. Thank you for following along. And there's an outline of where we're heading in the next few minutes. I'm sure we're all familiar, aren't we, with rise and fall stories. Rise and fall stories. Uh, rise and fall stories in history, uh, like Napoleon Bonaparte rising to be the emperor of France, uh, taken over pretty much most of Europe, yet spent his final years exiled at St. Helena, uh, a thousand miles off the coast of Africa, alone, without any access to anyone. Or, or rise and fall stories in sport. Uh, you'll remember a few years back, Leicester City, they went through all the, uh, the, the, uh, the league tables up to the premiership and then won the premiership but then only to fall back down again. I'm sorry if you're a Leicester City fan. Or rise and fall stories in business. Anyone remember Ratner's? I don't, but I, I've read about it. 
uh, Ratner's Jewelries, uh, the biggest jewelry chain in Britain. And then there was a few unguarded comments by its chairman, look it up later, and the company collapsed to be, its share price collapsed to be no more. See, we're drawn, aren't we, to rise and fall stories, wherever they are, history, sport, business. Uh, We're drawn to them because it is remarkable how people can rise so high and fall so low. But I think we're also drawn to them because they contain a warning for us. As we hear about the, the, the extent to which people ascend and the, the amount they fall, we think to ourselves, what is it they did that I want to avoid? Perhaps it's the pride of Napoleon and the fact that he isolated his friends, or Leicester City who couldn't deal with the success, or don't criticize your own products like Ratner's, perhaps. See, we listen to those stories, don't we, and we think, I've got to avoid that. I've got to do something different. Well, this morning we have a rise and fall narrative in the story of King Saul. Um, It is really a story of two halves. The first half pretty much is the rise of Saul, and then the second half is the dramatic fall of Saul. And as we're going to see, as we look at Saul's example, it is an example for us to see what went wrong for him so that we might learn the lesson for us. See, first of all then, in chapters 8 to 12, we see the rise of Saul. And I've got to say from the the outset, really the rise of Saul here isn't really about Saul. It is about the God who causes him to rise. Because as Saul rises, we see God's mercy and kindness towards his people. Uh, Woody showed us last week in chapter 8 that the people demanded a king. And I guess we hear that and we think to ourselves, what's the big deal? I mean, some people like kings, some people like republics. What's the big deal? But we saw that actually uh, this was a rejection of God himself. He was meant to be their king. They were meant to be different to the nations, but God, uh, and God was their king, but they rejected him. And in chapter 12, we see Samuel reflecting just on how rebellious this act was. Um, And notice how he puts it. If you turn to chapter 12, um, there is going to be a bit of page flicking. Um, So uh, just to warn you, chapter 12, verse 8, notice what he says here. It gives a bit of recent history. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. Uh, Over the page, chapter 12, verse 10, he speaks about the king of Moab, and he says again, verse 10, they cried out to the Lord, we have sinned, and um, he then sends, in verse 11, Jeroboam and Barak and uh, Samuel and others. So um, the, the pattern goes, the people cried out, the Lord provided, but notice how this pattern goes in verse 12. But when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us. See, time and time again, God proved his impeccable record of saving his people. They cried out, the Lord answered. They cried out, the Lord answered. They cried out again and said, no, we don't want the Lord. We want a king. But what does God do to their, in response to them? Does he reject them? 
Does he stop being their God? Well, no, he remarkably answers their cry. Uh, In chapters 9 and 10, I don't know if anyone had a chance to read it over the weekend. There's quite a lot of reading, seven chapters, I think. Uh, Well done. I'm sure we can get you a sticker or something if you've managed to do that. Uh, But in 9 to 10... um, it's, it's very confusing. I don't know if you've read it, but it talks about donkeys and loaves of bread and wine and people coming with tambourines and flutes and all sorts of things. And it, it might seem very random. Uh, don't read it now, but it might seem very random. But in those chapters 9 and 10, we see God uh, arranging events so that he causes Saul to rise to be the king. And in chapter 9, verse 16, we hear God explain what he's, why he's doing what he's doing. Chapter 9, verse 16, he says to Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Appoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. See, notice what's going on here. They cried out, God save. They cried out, God save. They cried out, They rejected God, but even through their rejection, God says, I'm going to provide a king to save them. See, throughout these chapters, God has every right to throw the book at his people. He has every right to say, if you don't want me, well, don't have me. But he works through their sinful, rebellious actions to save them, to have mercy on them. And in chapter 11, we're given a kind of close-up view of just how wonderful that mercy is. We we heard this read. Nigel did a great job of reading it to us. Thank you. Um, Nahash, the Ammonite king, he comes against this uh, uh, village or town, Jabesh Gilead. And um, you'll see on the map behind me that actually um, there's a, a red arrow pointing to it there. It's quite an isolated town. So it's right on the edge of the country. The Ammonites, you can just see them on the edge of the map there. It's the uh, yellow bit on the map uh, towards uh, this side here. Um, but they're really out on a limb. And not only that, in the book of Judges, this is the town that didn't join with the rest of Israel and were therefore kind of cut off from the people. Uh, and the Ammonites, they come to this uh, town, and the way they used to do things in those days is to besiege the town. They would cut off its water supply and food supply and basically starve the people out. And you can imagine, can't you, the, the council leaders at um, Jabesh Gilead Borough Council. Uh, they realize what's going to happen, and so they send the council leaders out to meet Nahash and to make a treaty. And Nahash comes back to them and says, yeah, fine, I'll I'll do you a treaty. But notice the terms of his treaty. Well, if you can gouge out your right eye. It's not the fairest of treaties I've heard. um, And I guess that's why the people are terrified as they hear that. And so they say to themselves, say to Nahash in 11 verse 3, Give us seven days so we can send messengers through Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. In fact, the word there, rescue, it's save. And this word's going to come up time and time again. If no one is there to save us, well, then we'll give ourselves over to you. 
And the news gets around, people cry as they hear this news. But then in verse 6, Saul hears it, and the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and he's burning with anger, and he responds. He sends out a conscription call to the the nation. Um, Instead of a kind of poster that says, your country needs you, uh, he cuts up an oxen and says, that's going to happen to your livestock if you, if you don't get on this. And it seems to work. 300,000 people muster to Jabesh's rescue. And then they go, um, and notice how they put it in verse 9. Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered, or the word saved. See, the Ammonites were, 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 were besieging them Jabesh was looking at starvation, hunger, or defeat, and now salvation has come. See, in chapter 8, the people reject God because they want a king, but yet he still works events to save those people. And in chapter 11, we see that salvation come. In verse 13, Saul says, today the Lord has rescued or saved Israel. See, God is far more merciful than I think we often imagine. Even his people's rebellion is no barrier to him sending his salvation, keeping faithful to them. But here's the key thing. Notice that he does it precisely through their rebellion. See, God could have said, look, you want a king? Well, have a king, but have nothing to do with me. He could have said, well, you want a king? No, I refuse to give you a king. But he doesn't, does he? He does, he says, yes, have a king, but he still stays their God. Even though they push him away, he doesn't push them away. It's like a rebellious child who robs the family home to go it alone on their own, only for the father to watch from a distance, to check they're still safe, to check they're all okay. See, God works through his people's rebellion to bring salvation. And it's seen ultimately in what we see in Jesus, isn't it? See, God, in sending Jesus, doesn't wait for us to turn to him Uh, In sending Jesus, he doesn't wait for us to obey him. In fact, God doesn't wait for us at all. Rather, he works through our rebellion to save us. Romans uh, Romans 5 verse 8 puts it this way. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the rise of Saul isn't really the rise of Saul. The rise of Saul is pointing to the God who causes him to rise. And it's a God who works through our rebellion to provide salvation. But, as I said at the beginning, this is a rise and fall story. Uh, And for all the promise that Saul brings, it quickly changes from chapter 13. It had to be chapter 13, didn't it? Chapter 13 uh, to 15, we see the fall of Saul. See, Samuel, he gives a speech in chapter 12 um, about what might happen in the future. 
And he says some words at the end of chapter 12 that kind of overshadow what follows. Uh, Have a look at chapter 12, verse 24. Samuel says this, be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. You could almost imagine, can't you, the author put in, I wonder what's going to happen next. Because here's the warning. Yes, you've got a king, and God's going to provide a king for you, but they've got to worship the true king. You've got to stay obedient. And that's what we see, um, in the, sadly, in the chapters that follow, we see Saul take two wrong turns, two big mistakes, that means he falls foul of this lesson. Uh, the first comes in chapter 13, it's another battle, and um, this time it's the Philistines, and they gather against Saul and the nation. And chapter 13 is a um, a terrifying picture. Verse 5, we read that the Philistines assemble to fight with Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This is proper sort of Ben-Hur stuff, isn't it? I mean, imagine the terror of seeing 3,000 chariots. And understandably, in verse 6, we read that the Israelites start to peel off, some even hiding caves, some desert from the army. And Saul, I guess, really desperately wants to engage this enemy, uh, but he's been instructed in 13 verse 8 that he's to wait seven days for Samuel to come and to offer the sacrifice that's normally done before a battle like this. Saul waits, he sees his troops peeling off, and he gets impatient, and in uh, chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 13, uh, verse 11 rather, he, he takes the sacrifice, sorry, verse 11, I'm telling you, I'm making it up as I go along, there we are, uh, verse 9, sorry, uh, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, and he does it himself. And it seems that he's only halfway through when Samuel arrives in verse 13, and it says, what have you, uh, verse 11, it says, what have you done? And in verse 13, he says, you've acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for a time. But now your kingdom will not endure. See, Samuel makes, uh, Saul makes one fatal mistake, doesn't he? He doesn't trust the Lord at his word. Yes, we can understand Saul. Uh, Yes, we can see his reasoning. But actually, he takes matters into his own hand, reinterprets what God says, and offers up the sacrifice himself. And and the second event is uh, the one we saw in our reading in chapter 15, where Saul is instructed to go and wipe out the Amalekites. Now, this is one of those famous kind of difficult passages of the Bible Um, because it's one in which God tells him to go and destroy the Amalekites. And obviously, it raises the question for us as modern readers, why would God tell them to do such a thing? Um, I've got a lot I could say on this, um, but we've only got a few moments. Um, I um, 
I did a first-year essay on this. I think Woody may have done as well. But uh, go and ask Woody anyway. Um, but here's a, just a couple of things uh, to say. Uh, 14 verse 48, notice that the Amalekites, um, he talks about them plundering Israel. So this is not some sort of innocent group just minding their own business, uh, and God tells them to go and attack them. Uh, This is an enemy of the people. This is a group that is plundering them and attacking them. But secondly thing to say is that in 15 verse 2, God... um, says to go and attack them, but he he puts it in the context of their opposition towards Israel right from the very start, from when they left Egypt. And so it seems that God is using Saul at this time to bring his judgment on their sin. It's not something that's repeated. It's definitely not something the church should do. Jesus told Peter to put down the sword but it's a unique moment where God brings his judgment in real history through Saul. And whilst it's right to ask that, actually the focus really isn't on why can God do this. The focus is on how Saul didn't carry it out. Uh, We read in 15 verse 9 that Saul spared Agag the king and all the best fat calves and sheep and cattle. He even uh, put up a monument to himself in verse 12. And in 15 verse 12, um, Samuel goes to confront Saul. Uh, There's a bit of a guilty conscience, isn't there, in verse 13, when he says, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. You already know there's something wrong there. Uh, Because Samuel replies in verse 14, what's this? The bleating of sheep in my ears. What's this lowly, uh, lowing of cattle that I hear? And so Samuel says, in verse, uh, uh, Samuel says in verse 19, Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? See, here's the same mistake. Saul thinks he knows better. Saul's proud. He's arrogant. He thinks he can reinterpret God's words. And I guess for us, we, we, think, we probably hear this and we think, why does it matter? I mean, the fact that Saul offered the sacrifice on the seventh day, he had already waited six or seven days. And yes, he doesn't carry out the command to destroy the Amalekites, but to be honest, come on, he did most of it. But actually, us having that reaction shows us precisely why keeping God's word matters, and how lightly often we think that is. It's worth saying that God here is not being pedantic. He's not sort of saying, look, you've done most of it, but you've missed a bit. The point of holding back with a sacrifice wasn't just to tick some box, but to show that you trusted God, so much so that you could wait. And Saul taking the sacrifice into his own hands was like he was treating God like a genie, thinking that he can kind of force God's hand rather than just trust him. And the point of wiping out the Amalekites was that they would no longer be a threat to his people. See, the the big point comes in verse 22 where Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as much as obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. See, God doesn't want a people or a king who just go through the motions, follow the rituals, but don't listen to his words. He doesn't want a king or a people who are quite good at ticking the I've done the right thing box, but don't actually obey his words. And there's a warning here, isn't there, for us. In how serious God takes obedience to his words. There's a warning here, I think, in the subtlety of it. Um, Because notice Saul here, it's very clever, isn't he? He doesn't just sort of flat out deny God's word. He doesn't say, oh, well, God said that, forget it, I'll do something different. No, he slightly tweaks it. He reinterprets it. It's a kind of, did God really say moment. See, notice he offers a sacrifice, doesn't he? He's not saying God doesn't matter. And notice in the Amalekites, he says, I have obeyed the word of the Lord, because he wanted um, to, to keep back the sheep and the cattle to devote it, verse 21, as a sacrifice to the Lord. How often do we find ourselves breaking God's word and yet making it sound religious? I've prayed about it. Or God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. See, Saul's fall shows us obedience matters. You can have all the successes he had, but if you don't trust God's word entirely, all is lost. Jesus puts it like this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. But Saul's downfall does warn us, yes, but more than that, I think it points us forward to the king you and me truly need. See, uh, this king, uh, Saul, um, his kingdom is going to fall away, but it, it points to a king that we see predicted in chapter 13, verse 14. This is the last bit of page flicking, I promise. Chapter 13, verse 14. Because there Samuel says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. See, that's the sort of king one Samuel is teaching us we need. A king who is after God's own heart. A king who won't think, oh, I'll do things my way or be proud and arrogant to to kind of reinterpret God's word. But he says, yes, Lord, what's your will is my will. And that is the king we see in King Jesus. In John chapter 6, we read that Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus doesn't do things as he sees fit. He doesn't go his own way when he thinks he's got an easier path. He obeys. He trusts. And that obedience and trust extends even to his greatest trial. As Jesus faced his death in the garden, sweating like blood 
drops, uh, blood, uh, drops of blood, he prays, yet not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus' obedience becomes our obedience. See, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God doesn't look on us and see our rebellion and see all the times we've strayed from His Word, but He sees His Son with His full and perfect obedience to His Word. Yes, there are warnings here. Don't stray from God as your King. Don't think you're cleverer than God so that you can reinterpret His Word. But the big point is that even when you do stray, even when you do make those sort of mistakes, you have a king who has obeyed on your behalf and has been perfectly right in his obedience to his father's words. See, we see the rise of Saul, God's mercy in providing a savior. We see the fall of Saul. He falls because he doesn't obey but those things point us forward to the Lord Jesus who steps in, obeys for us, and makes us like himself. In our final couple of minutes, just a couple of things to take away, maybe to chew over in the coffee. Um, three applications, I think, that come off this. First of all, know that God is more merciful than you imagine. I don't know about you, but I read God's actions here, and I'm reminded again of just his patience, of the extent of his goodness, and the sheer determination to save his people, even through our mistakes. And it might be that some of us are here this morning thinking to ourselves, well, I'd love to come to God, but do you know what? I've made too many bad decisions. Or maybe you think to yourself, well, I would have come to God, but surely he can't forgive me for the seventh, eighth, hundredth time. But actually, in Christ, he brings his salvation when you were a sinner. He doesn't wait for you to move towards him before he moves away to you, uh, moves towards you. See, God is more merciful than you can ever imagine. Secondly, um, obedience to God's word matters. See, Saul is a warning, isn't he? Uh, we've got a lot of sympathy with Saul, at least I have. Because you think to him, he's got his heart, well, it seems like his heart is initially in the right place. It seems that he's trying to do the right thing. But he makes that one fatal error of thinking he knows better, of thinking that he can just slightly change God's word. And of course, it's an error that's run straight from the God of an Eden throughout history. And I don't know about you, but I just need to keep hearing that, keep hearing that actually God's word matters. It's worth holding on to. And actually, when I'm tempted, whether through peer pressure or through my own internal uh, temptation, to, to stray from his word, actually, that ends disastrously. But thirdly, Rejoice in the king we already have. See, 1 Samuel is pointing us forward, getting us to long for a king that isn't like Saul. And I don't know about you, I can sometimes think of Jesus and his death and resurrection and forget 
that not only do those things become mine in him, but actually his obedience becomes mine. Uh, Jesus uh, doesn't just wipe the slate clean, if you like. Actually, he swaps places with us so that God sees me as he sees his son. And so every time you read Jesus obeying his father's words, every time you see Jesus holding on to the words despite the many temptations not to, actually that has become our obedience. God sees us as he sees his son. God is more merciful. Obedience matters, but rejoice the king who has obeyed on our behalf. Let's pray. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Our Father, we confess to you that so often we think more highly of ourselves than obedience to your word. Please forgive us for that. Please help us to take lessons from Saul. But we thank you, Father, that you have provided one who is after your own heart. And we pray, Father, that we would rejoice in what we have in him and listen to his words. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.